Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 20 through 28. Hebrews chapter 7. I want you to take a, a trip down memory lane. Your own memory. Um, just any old, any old place back in the past that you would be nostalgic about. Like, um, uh, is there anything about the good old days that you long for? Okay, the good old days. Um, so, so if that's back when, um, when canned vegetables were acceptable. Um, <laughs> you know, or just whatever it is, right? Just, just, just set in your mind what it would be just to be nostalgic and long for the good old days. And when those good old days end, even if you choose to end them, right, in your own volition, even if you choose to end them, you, you eventually get to this place where you miss what you knew back then even though you knew you were leaving behind something good that wasn't as good as you now have. Okay, so for, so for like, like example from my childhood, like I, I, one of the things that I have been more and more nostalgic about as a result of having a 17-year-old and a, and a, and a junior, senior junior high school is, is the fact that um, in my, when I was 17, right, um, I, I had like these, these, I could go anywhere at any time within a five mile radius and basically everybody in the community knew who I was. Um, if I, and if I couldn't take a car, I could bike there in twice as much time, but that's really 20 minutes instead of 10, right? Like you could bike for 20 minutes and just all of the, the good things basically that came with growing up in a small town. We're talking about Mississippi earlier. That kind of that kind of thing, right? Which is so when you get nostalgic about the past, you can start to feel resentful or negative toward the, the future. Like what's lacking in Middle Tennessee? Like this is pretty much God's country, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Like, but even living in God's country, if you start reflecting about something in the past that you you miss or are sad about, that's that's nostalgia, right? You're you, and even when, even when what you have now is so much better than what you had necessarily had then in many, many more ways, you can still feel this longing for it. You can still kind of want to go back and experience it. And then you go, for like when I go to Mississippi for like three days, I'm like, okay, that's enough. And I want to come back here, right? I love my, I love my family. It's not about that. It's just, it's just nostalgia, right? We're coming to Hebrews 7. And this, that is in effect what the Christians who are reading this letter for the first time, were this, that's effectively what they were doing. Partly it's because of the persecution that they were suffering as a result of leaving behind Judaism and choosing Jesus. In part, if we're being honest, some of the Christians missed the ritualism, the roteness, the, the religiosity of just, of just of Judaism. 
And because of that persecution and because it's like, you know, did we really make a good choice by choosing Jesus? They began to feel a sense of nostalgia and a lure away from Jesus and back into the ritualism of Judaism. Does that make sense? So last week when I was talking about whether or not Jesus or the Father could have buyer's remorse about you, and the answer is absolutely no. It's just not in his character and it's not in his promise. This week I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had buyer's remorse about Jesus? I, 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 I want to know if you've ever thought, you know, Jesus sounded pretty amazing, so I went all in, but now, for a number of reasons, I'm starting to have my doubts. This, this Christian thing can hardly be worth what it's costing me. Should I go back? That's what the Hebrews were doing, and that's what we're going to do alongside of them with today. If, so, is Jesus worth it? That's the question that we're asking. Is there any reason you should ever have buyer's remorse as a Christian? Basically, every New Testament book is written to answer this, this question, right? I mean, I could, we could pick any text, but really the book of Hebrews is dedicated to this problem, 100%. So the point that the author is going to make over and over and over again is Jesus is better and you should never have any buyer's remorse. Not because you were wise in your assessment, because Jesus genuinely and truly is better, is best. So if you've tried secularism, if you've tried materialism, if you've tried humanism, if you've tried consumerism, if you've tried Mormonism or Hinduism or Judaism or Buddhism... Whatever ism, Jesus is better. This is the point of the book of Hebrews, and we're just going to go right kind of into the center of the book and address that question. So would you stand with me, please? From just, uh, We're going to read Hebrews 7, 20 through 28 together. Hebrews 7, 20. None of this happened without an oath. For others became priests with out an oath, but he, that's Jesus, became a priest with an oath and made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus also has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks, man. You may be seated. So we're going we're gonna to break this text down, um, and, I, and I want to lay out for you very simply an answer to the question, is why is Jesus better? Why is Jesus better? And the first reason Jesus is better, God proclaimed in verses 20 through 21, and the, answer, the, the first answer to that is this, because God promised he would be better. God promised he would be better. Look at verse 20 through 21. None of this happened without an oath. For others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him from Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. If you open up all of chapter 7, you'll find on three occasions just in this chapter alone, there's this stress by the author that Jesus is this high priest forever. That's back in verse 3, back in verse 17, and then right here. And each of these times we're quoting Psalm 110 verse 4 as an authority for his conviction. And the reason the author cites this psalm is because it contains an oath from the Father. It's God's oath. It's God's promise that this distinctive priesthood of Jesus that's after the order of Melchizedek, which I will not try and break down for you today, my point is that there's been an oath, there's been a promise that this priesthood of Melchizedek from which Jesus, where Jesus comes from is permanent. It's changeless. The Lord has sworn that this will be the case and He will not change His mind. Look at the oath. Look at, look at uh, the, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. See, the first part of this just declares the fact, right? The Lord has sworn it. And if you're a Hebrew, and remember this is being written to Hebrews who are being encouraged to do what? Nostalgia. To go back and change their mind. And, and so the author, the author lays out and says, no, no, remember the Lord said, the Lord made a promise, the Lord swore an oath. He will not change his mind. God said it. And if you're Jewish, if God said it, it was in effect done. I said it, so it's done. It's not just a, a word. It's not just an option. It's not just a potential to a Jew to hear the words the Lord swore an oath is to say that it's actually done. The word itself has the power to initiate the event, like creation. And here the Lord has sworn an oath. You will be a, you will be a priest forever. So the statement is made, and then the second part of the statement, it's, it's reliable. I will not change my mind. The Lord isn't going to go back on His Word because when He says His Word, it's effectively done. So I'm going to unfold the details of this promise. But for now, I just want you to see that the foundational reason that Jesus is better is because God said He would be. He just said He would be. He promised. He swore the oath that He would be better. Now, you would think that if God said it, that would be enough, but that's not all that the Hebrew writer of this letter says. He wants to encourage these Christians, and He wants to encourage us to commit ourselves to Jesus without this hesitation, without this sense of nostalgia. And so He gives us this new picture of Jesus in verse 22, and it's, the word is guarantee, okay? A guarantor. Look at verse 22. Because of this oath... 
Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. So underline that word, a guarantee. Okay, the guarantee. So the the Greek word there is injos. It's the only place in the entire New Testament that this word exists. So what is what is a guarantor? What, is a, what does it mean to, to execute a, a guarantee? So a guarantor, still a little word nerd here. A, a guarantor is the person who pledges himself that something that has been declared will actually be. Okay, so the guarantor is the one who knows our needs and he stands in our place in order to be sure that the promises that were made will actually be executed. Okay? It's the person who carries out the legal obligation that's been, that's been declared. So, and so what the author of Hebrews is saying is this, is like Jesus is the one who is executing what God has promised. Um, there are two kinds of people in this world, Apple and Android people. Okay, raise your hand if you're an Android person. It's okay, don't be shy. You won't be judged too harshly. Apple people, raise your hand. Okay, yeah, but we're more Apple than Android as we should be. Sorry, what? Sorry, I didn't hear that. Yeah, all right. We, Holly and I switched once. Holly, Holly did not, so I switched to Holly. <laughs> I switched to and we will never do that again, ever. We will always, for the Lord as the Lord tarries, we are going to be Apple people just because it's been ingrained into our minds and because whenever I've had trouble with Apple, I have, I have gotten to test their guarantee. So one time I went in with a phone, it was like a six or a seven, this was, you know, five years ago or so. And, um, I took in my phone. It was, it was, you know, within a year or so old for something that I assumed that because it wasn't that old of a phone, they would just fix under their, their, their guarantee. And the, the customer service guy at the desk, you know, they, they make you feel like you're in the coolest room in the whole play, in the whole universe. And you're sitting there and, you know, it's just, you know we're talking, we're, he's going through all the things with the, with the phone. And, and, and he said, okay, well, let me go get your new one. I said, well, I, is this just like a loan? Or he's like, no, I'm giving you a new phone because that's what we promise people for this situation that you're in. We just give you a new phone. So, so keep this, there's what's going on here. The customer service guy earning 10 to $15 an hour in the Cool Springs Mall knew my needs, stood in my place before the company at large to be sure that the promises that the company at large had made regarding my phone were actually kept. Apple issued the promise. The representative was the guarantor on my behalf. He's executing the guarantee. And I got a new phone that lasted a few months, right? Because I dropped that one in the toilet or that one in the creek or whatever. I don't know if y'all have ever had that happen. God has promised that Jesus would be better. Verse 20 through 21 Jesus himself guarantees that what the Father has promised is going to take place. Make sense? So he's better because God has promised, and Jesus the Son who is in the Trinity, is wrapped in the Godhead, is executing the promise. How do you know Jesus is better? It's got nothing to do with your feelings this morning. It's got nothing to do with what you did last night. 
It's got everything to do with His promise and His Son executing the promise. How does He execute the promise? How does the guarantee manifest itself? That's verses 23 through 28. And the guarantee manifests itself in the form of Jesus being a better priest. Remember, we're talking to Jewish people, so we've got to wrap our heads around this. So He's a better priest and He's a better sacrifice. He's a better priest and He's a better sacrifice. In verses 23 through 26, the author gives four reasons why that Jesus is a better priest. Look at verses 23 to 26. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. And for this, for this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So in this text, there are four reasons why Jesus, in acting out his role as guarantor, is a better priest than the earthly ones that a Jewish person, feeling nostalgic, wondering because of the persecution, wondering because of the consequences associated with following Jesus that we experience on this earth. Should I go back? Can I just... Can I just be ritualistic? Can I just trust in my obedience to the law? No, Jesus is a way better priest than the one that you would depend on. How so? Number one, he had a permanent achievement. Look at verse 23 and 24. Many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by what? Death. They can't stay in office because they die. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Century after century after century, the Jewish people served by thousands upon thousands of priests, some really good ones and some really bad ones. But no matter how dedicated they were to their work, death ended their ministry until Jesus came. And death did not end Jesus' ministry. And therefore, Jesus is the permanent holder of this priestly office because He is alive. He's alive. So this takes us back to the beginning of what I'm talking about with regarding nostalgia and its ability to like cause us to doubt the situation that we're in. It's a little bit like, it's not contentment. It's a little bit like, um, like you know, greener grass, a little bit like that. Like, you know, it, you know it's... Maybe it's better over there where we were instead of better over here now where we are. There's a little bit of that, that going on. See, it would have been much easier for some of the Christians receiving this letter to think about Jesus' days of earthly ministry. Okay, that was cool. Yeah, that was good. Like, I remember that. And, it, and maybe even as they saw the Spirit's work through the church, like we could read about in the book of Acts, they would say, yeah, that was amazing. You know, there's a lot of power there. But now, like 40 years later... This letter's being written and things have kind of settled down a little bit in the, in the penetration of God's kingdom out of Jerusalem. And now there's persecution. Now there's pressure. Now there's cost. Now there's consequences. So we're getting farther away from the historical reality that we got to experience. And now we're enmeshed in pressures and, and, and persecution 
That's getting intense. So I, I know all that happened, author of Hebrews. I know all that happened, whoever wrote this letter. But here's the thing. Shouldn't we go back? I mean, that way we wouldn't have all this pressure and that way we wouldn't have this thing. Is it really worth it? To which the author would say, there are no more priests that can do what Jesus has done. If you go back there, you're going into an empty room, a meaningless ritual, a a rote, void practice that has no meaning anymore because Jesus is our priest forever. He permanently achieved whatever those Jewish priests are still trying to do. They are wasting their time. So not only is Jesus a better priest because he's permanently achieved it, but he has a limitless power in his act. Look at verse 25. He is able to save completely, save fully, save absolutely those who come to God through him. Jesus' power knows no limits and his life knows no end. Jesus is able to save completely. Trying to nurse that word a little bit because it's kind of a weird word in the Greek. Fully, completely, nothing is necessary to supplement what he has done. We're not saved by a little believing plus a little doing. No, he's, it's his power. He's able to save thoroughly by his work all the way. Now, if you want to understand the, a really good application of that, this is from chapter 8 in your book here. So if you haven't read, I'm going to give you a little taste This is Dane Ortland explaining what it means that Jesus has limitless power. Listen to this from chapter 8. He says, Our presence in God's good favor and in His family will never sputter and never die like an engine running out of gas. We all tend to have some small pocket of our lives where we have difficulty believing that the forgiveness of God can reach us. We say that we, we say we're totally forgiven and we believe our sins are forgiven pretty much anyway. But there's that one deep, dark part of our lives, even in our present, that seems so intractable, so ugly, so beyond recovery. Save completely or save to the uttermost in this passage means that God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our souls. Those places where we are most ashamed, most defeated. And more than this, those crevices of sin are themselves where Jesus loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost and He saves us to the uttermost. He knows us completely, the CSB. He saves us completely because His heart is drawn to us completely. We cannot sin our way out of His tender care. It's a limitless power into our lives. He's a better priest. And he's also a better priest because of, his, um, because of his present ministry to us, like his present ministry. We think about the ministry of Jesus being his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and now it's done. No, there's an ongoing ministry of the Son to the Father on our behalf. The end of verse 25. He always lives to do what? intercede for them. That's for you and me. Jesus' saving mission is complete, but He now supports, supports us and He sustains us through this intercessory 
ministry. Let me put it to you this way. Right now, Jesus is praying for you. Right now. Always. For eternity. Now, if you're a Jewish person, this, this, will, this will strike at you. Because rabbis during this time and before, they taught that intercession on behalf of people to the Father in the heavenly realms was entrusted to angels. And yet here, in the book of Hebrews, the very Jewish, now Christian writer, is portraying Christ as the one who is exercising this intercessory role. God himself, in the form of the Son, is praying to the Father through the Spirit on your behalf, not a created angelic being. So Jesus, unlike the angels, going back to Hebrews chapter 1, by the way, where Jesus is better than the angels, here's one of those reasons why. He is interceding for us compassionately. He knows exactly what we need, which angels do not. He intercedes for us effectively because He has the power to meet the need and the angels don't. Jesus is better because of His present ministry, which is better than any angelic ministry you might ever want to experience. You know, Jesus during his earthly ministry, prayed for his friends. Chapter after chapter in the Gospels. And the early Christian people rejoiced at the thought that that, that Jesus was praying for his friends, John 14, John 15, John 16, for example, that wasn't, that wasn't confined to that time. It's going on now. And that's, that's his, it's a better ministry. And he's got a better character. Look at verse 26. This is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Even the most devout priest who served in the old covenant was a sinner. Read your Old Testament. There were lots of bad ones. The, The office to hold the office of priest required them to be pure, required them to be sinless lives, but they were, just like the people they were serving, sinners by nature. And so the, the priesthood that they practiced required all of these rituals for cleansing and all these rituals for purity, but Jesus' priesthood is effective. He didn't have to do any of that, y'all, because he was the ultimate priest. Jesus lived a holy... Look, just look at the text... Jesus lived a holy life. It was set apart completely for God's work, and so it was fully pleasing to the Father. He lived a blameless life. He never disappointed as far as any moral perfection is concerned. Never. He lived an unstained life. Nothing impure ever marred his sinless beauty. He lived a separated life. Even though he moved freely and lovingly among us, he was entirely given to God's will. And so he was never compromised, even as he loved sinners, even as he pressed into the crevices of everybody's disgusting life. He was never marred by it, never compromised. And now he lives an exalted life. I want you to think about this. How many moral failures of Christian evangelical leaders have we had to deal with in the last few weeks, months, and years? How many? Let's start naming them all. Just kidding. 
But we could, from famous to local nobodies, so to speak, we could do it. It's in the dozens to the hundreds. If our faith was based solely upon the character of earthly religious leaders so that we could be in some sort of communion with God, we would be up a creek without a battle. But the church is not the church of Rob Timms, Kevin Wax, Ken Kangas, or any pastor in town. The church is the church of Jesus Christ. And as important as the character of our earthly leaders is, the church does not rise and fall on the character of its earthly leaders in order for us to be in relationship with God. We have Jesus. His character is sinless. God and I are good because I got Jesus. The church is going to be great because He's the head and we're the body. The church is great because He is the groom and we are the bride. We are not dependent upon the morality and the integrity of our leadership on earth to be right with God. It's super important. He's the better priest for all of those reasons, and He is the better sacrifice. Look at verse 27 and 28. Jesus doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once and for all time when He offered what? himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak, but the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Jesus was not only the perfect priest, he was the perfect sacrifice. So the Jewish priest would offer the blood of bulls and goats for himself and for his contemporaries, but Jesus offered up himself, not the blood of animals, and he did it for everybody, not just for himself. And a priest's offerings had to be repeated constantly, daily sacrifices in some cases. But the sacrifice of Jesus is unique and it's permanent, it is pure, it, is, it has efficacy, it's, it's effective, and it's cost. And he did it once for all when he offered up himself. How is this guarantee? Jesus, the Lord, the Father promised it. Jesus is acting as the guarantor. How does that guarantee execute itself? By him being a better priest and by him being a better sacrifice. Nostalgia. Is it better? Should we go back? No, God has promised this would be right and true. Jesus is executing the promise. And we see, we know, we just preach some truth to ourselves about who Jesus is and what he has done as a better priest and as a better sacrifice. We will never choose otherwise. Which leads me just a single point of application. Going back to verse 21, the Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. What do we do? I said just now, I just said, you know, we preach some truth to ourselves about who Jesus is and what he's done. You know what this boils down to? It's just taking God at his word. Just it's taking God at his word. It's just coming to the fact where we humble ourselves and, and, and we realize that truth is not created out of us. We cannot fabricate it and, and then hold on to it and, and then lie to ourselves that it's actually true, but that the truth of who God is and what he's done is revealed to us. 
and we have to believe it by grace through faith and trust it every day. Because his word is completely trustworthy. He doesn't vacillate. He doesn't change his mind. And our eternal salvation depends neither on our feelings or our experiences. It's because God has said it would be so. Folks, Jesus is our priest forever. I want to just, this is what's true. You got to, this is what's true. Tell yourself this. You're going to disappoint him. You're going to fail him. He's not going to cast you off because he said he's not going to cast you off. He's true to his word, and for all time, Jesus is the priest to those who love and trust him, even though we fail in the way. He is unchangeable. He is a changeless priest. Lots of reasons to doubt from time to time. Lots of reasons to have uncertainty. And you could be urged by these things to, to go away back to something else that's more comfortable, something that was more manageable for you. But, but this letter urges us to take God at His word and acknowledge the fact that even though our feelings and our circumstances are going to swarm, He has sworn an oath that His Son is our priest forever. And I'll take that over my whirlwind of a heart and my emotions. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the promise a sworn oath that there would be a better and perfect priest and a better and perfect sacrifice, one that Jesus guaranteed through his life, death, and his resurrection. And so, Father, we simply ask that you would, you would press on us to believe this truth when circumstances and feelings and experiences compel us to do otherwise. Bring the truth to bear on our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.